Welcome to the Riverside Project podcast. We are mobilizing Houston to empower families and transform generations. We hope these conversations will give you a greater understanding of the issues facing our community and inspire you to find your place along the river. today is Tara Grigg Green. Tara is an attorney um, as well as the founder and executive director of the Foster Care Advocacy Center. The FCAC is a multidisciplinary law office that provides holistic representation for kids and families that are involved with the foster care system. Tara, thanks for taking the time to have the conversation today. My pleasure. Yeah. Well, let's just get started. Uh, we always start off by um, just a little introduction. What does um, the Foster Care Advocacy Center do um, and, and what? tell us about your work there? Sure. So we often go by FCAC just because it can be a tongue twister otherwise. And we provide legal representation holistically to children who are in the foster care system and parents with CPS involvement. And so what a lot of people don't realize is that when CPS takes a child from their parents or tries to, that's an infringement on the parents' constitutional rights. And because constitutional rights are at play, everyone gets an attorney. Yeah. So each parent gets an attorney. The child gets an attorney to have their voice heard in court or their best interests represented, depending on their age. And then we all go to court so that there's legal oversight. And what we do is that we make sure that our attorneys are specialized in this practice. They are the best attorneys in the courtroom. They have done the, they're practicing law specifically to do child welfare law. And then we have social services support outside of the courtroom. And that's what really makes us special is mm -hmm. that if we were just a collection of attorneys, we would just be a law office. Sure. But what makes us special is that we have also social services support because it's a very strange area of the law where if I win in the courtroom, that might not be the best outcome for everyone. Just because I'm the best lawyer in the courtroom right. doesn't mean the yeah. safety and well-being of children is going to be protected. It's not like if we're litigating for millions of dollars, then great, I'm the best lawyer in the courtroom and we go home with a, a windfall. But this is a really an area of the law where the fair administration of justice really depends on everyone having excellent yeah. attorneys. And also, we have a doctorate of social work, and we have a parent partner, a parent with lived experience, and we have social work interns that make sure that when these kids go home, they're not coming back into foster care. And mm -hmm. so their role is to help us as lawyers find placement and place kids with relatives. And so sometimes, you know, I had a kid say like, Miss Tara, here's my my Thea on Facebook. And I was like, okay. And, but I'm a, I'm a lawyer, right? I'm not like trained to go to this auntie's house and see if there are booby traps or death traps. And so I take Chantrell, our doctorate of social work, Dr. Charles, I'll take her with me because she is trained to mm -hmm. look at safety. Yeah. And that auntie did not pass the CPS background check and the CPS, whatever. She was not an approved caregiver because they were actually building their home at that time. Okay. And that CPS thought it was like too hazardous. And so I, as the lawyer, am able to file a motion, go into court, advocate, because the judge can place with right. the relative, even if CPS objects. And so that's one example of why we have social services support. Another way is that on our parent side, when we're appointed to represent parents, we have Matilda, who has lived experience in multiple different mm -hmm. systems, and she's able to walk hand in hand with those parents. She's able to really speak to them um, on a level and an interpersonal level that they're able to connect with and walk them through services and help them understand the process yeah. and help them understand what it takes to get their kids back or 
if they're just not in a space to get their kids back, if their addiction or their mental health or something means that they can't be a safe, mm-hmm. stable, appropriate parent, she helps them identify other caregivers in their lives that can take their kids so that the parents' rights don't have to be terminated. They can still be in the yeah. kid's life and that we've made a different type of arrangement. So it's kind of complicated. People think that we're CASA or child advocates and we're not. We're very different from them. Those are lay yeah. people volunteers who are assigned to one case to talk about what they think the best interest of the child is. We are actual litigators. I, right. as an attorney, go into court. I file motions. I cross-examine witnesses. If I'm for a kid, I am advocate. I'm in all the ARD meetings. I'm advocating for special education needs. I'm filing motions for services. Mm-hmm. If I'm for the parent, I'm making sure that CPS is held accountable for infringing in this parent's rights. And if they do terminate the rights, that it's because the rights should be terminated, not because that parent didn't have good representation. Yeah, and I think there's so much, you mentioned just being complicated. Most people, I think in the general public, they hear about CPS cases and it's, well, CPS takes kids out of homes or hopefully they try to get kids back into homes. But the breadth of what happens in a courtroom, right? It's not just on CPS. That's not just their decision. We've talked on the on the podcast before about how there's so many different people involved um, to try and get to what is the best interest of this child? How do we keep this child safe? And an added layer to that is how do we get resources for this family who because they're involved with the system, are struggling, right? They're in the river. Um, and how do we collectively work together instead of against each other? I know that's more uh, difficult than it sounds, but what has been your experience in that? How, how, does that, how does that happen successfully with so many different people representing so many different interests? Hopefully, we're, we're trying to get the family and the kid out of the water and stable. You're asking a litigator how to not be adversarial. So um, basically, that's what I'm asking. (laughs) So I think there's a few different things. So we talk a lot or I think a lot and talk a lot about the class action litigation lawsuit that's going on with Judge Jack, MD versus Abbott. I have always said that the, you know, the finding is that CPS unconstitutionally harms kids. But it's the lawyers and the judges that allowed that to happen. They're the Mm. gatekeepers. They're the ones who hold CPS accountable. And so I don't think we're talking enough about what's happening in the courtroom to make sure that CPS is held accountable because there's been decades and decades of my predecessors who are just like show up to court. They don't know their clients. They've never met their kid clients. They have already written off their parent clients. They donated to a judge's campaign so they could get appointed on the wheel and everyone high fives and has drinks and kumbayas and no one ever holds this agency accountable. So I think our role in the river is that accountability piece. Mm -hmm. We, if you're going to, if you're going to do this, we want to make sure that you're doing it right. So when I first started practicing in Houston, there was a regional attorney that came to every single one of my hearings because I was getting all sorts of court orders for CPS to provide services to kids. If you're going to cancel a kid's birthday party on the day of his birthday, I'm going to get sanctions against you. If you're going to say that you're terminating a parent's rights because of their disability, I'm going to make sure that you comply with the ADA. I just showed up and was like, yeah. practicing Let's law. Let's just make sure that everyone <laughs> yeah. is getting what they need. Yeah. And then um, the agency was not was just like not used to that. They're used to that more now, but I would, at that time, it was really shocking. But so now part of us getting in the river with the families and helping them and stabilizing them Mm -hmm. is that I now also have 
resources like you. We have a very good community where I can reach out and say like, hey, I have this kid who's in this part of town. Who knows what kind of services? I don't want to talk about the service array that CPS provides. I don't want to talk about who's contracted with the Star Health. I want to talk about what service does this child and this family actually need. And then I can file a motion. I can go into court. I can get it court ordered for CPS to pay for that. And that's one way that we're able to be less constrained by the service array that mm-hmm. everyone talks about, the dearth of resources the, the that everyone talks itself. about. Yeah. And so, and because I have a social services director, I'm able to also, you know, people are more at ease talking to a social worker than an attorney. Sure. If I call a doctor's office, they're like, you have to talk to general counsel, right? But if Dr. Charles calls, they'll talk to her. And so yeah. that's also an easier way too, is we have a whole branch who's helping to figure out how to stabilize those families. And once we've identified those ways, I as a lawyer can Mm -hmm. go in the courtroom and get it court ordered. Yeah. I want to go back uh, just a little bit because I want, I think when you said not being adversarial, I think what we're, we're really getting at is raising the bar. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we talk about a lot with uh, within the system and what it looks like to transform foster care, um, we're not looking to abolish it. We're not looking to um, throw the whole thing out. What we're saying is, how do we raise the bar from better than nothing to excellence for kids and families in all aspects of that? So that could mean um, the care that kids receive in group homes and RTCs. Um, that could mean the care that biological and the services that biological families can access. How do we make this system a place where kids are stronger stronger when they leave it than when they came in. Um, that's kind of our vision. I think that's kind of what you're talking about is we could call it adversarial or like pushing back against the system, but hopefully what we're really doing is trying to set the bar of excellence. How do we raise the level of care um, that, not that level of care, the, <laughs> the quality of care for um, for kids and families that are involved with the system, right? I mean, that's that's kind of what you're what yeah. you're getting at. I'm going to take you on a bit of story time with me in a way to address this raising the bar. So I am from the Houston area. I'm from the Cypress area. My parents, when we were ten, when I was ten years old, decided that we were going to become a foster family, and it was part. I grew up in Christian evangelical household, and it was part of our mission to really help the kids and a lot of the other members of our church were doing it. And since that time, I've had over a hundred foster siblings. Wow. And it's because my parents were really the OGs and like, we're not yeah, adopting not in the current. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of culturally fairly getting to be fairly normal, but it definitely but wasn't back time, in the eighties and nineties. They 90s. were like, let's heal these families. Let's train the parents how to take care of their kids. Let's train the grandparents how to take care. We don't want to keep these kids forever. We want to help heal and, and, um, and preserve the family. But part of that was I'm first generation college. When I went to college uh, at Rice, I was just like, screw all these kids. This is a super bizarre upbringing. You've no come one, a long way, I guess. <laughs> no one can come over to my house in high school because we have like a, we don't have a formal dining. We have a playroom and we have, we took a lot of babies and they, we had to be quiet at nighttime. And I was just like, this is so weird. I'm going to go be an engineer. And I did not go be an engineer because One day um, I was able to go to the courtroom with my mom because I was still in Harris County and she was a foster parent and she wanted some support. And at that time we had a three-year-old in our house who was so brutally beaten by his father. His eyes had swollen Mm. shut. He had a gaping wound on his head that took over a year to heal. It required plastic surgery intervention. And, um, 
we were talking at that court hearing about what should happen with the placement of this child long term. And I sat at the back of the courtroom holding my mom's hand and watched at the front of the courtroom Mm -hmm. as this attorney who never met this child, who never visited my parents' home, who had no idea what was going on in his case, and a judge who's relying on that attorney for information and also has no idea what's going on made lasting decisions about this child's life. And that made such an impact on me because I thought the most important person in that courtroom is probably the judge, but the next most important person for that child is that child's attorney. Mm -hmm. Because that is, that attorney can really set the course for a child. People, you know, when I walk in the courtroom as a parent's attorney, people are like, oh no, parent's attorney. But you know, when you walk in the, you can, the judges really listen to you. And it's incumbent upon you to know your client and know what they need and know what's best. Yeah. And that set me in a whole different trajectory because that's the bar. That was the bar in Harris County was like, we just show up to court. We don't know what we're doing. And I saw the real Mm. life effects of that on um, this child who is now actually a a decade later, a member of my family. But I went to school on the East Coast. So I got my law degree at Penn. I got my master's in public policy at Harvard. And I really got an awesome four years just to see best practice. I got to work in New York. I got to work in D.C. I got to do amazing internships and externships in Philadelphia and in Boston. And I saw the gold standard of legal representation and child welfare. And then I came home to Houston and started practicing in this space and was like, Oh, oh no. And uh, when I first came back, people would say to me, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry you couldn't get a firm job and you had to do this. Oh my gosh. And I was like, thanks for that encouragement. I went to Rice Penn and Harvard. I got a federal clerkship. I got a prestigious fellowship. I could have had a firm job. I'm choosing to do this because I think that it needs to be done well. And that concept of choosing to do this when you can do something Mm -hmm. else was just like mind blowing. And I think that shows the quality of the attorneys. And I don't want to say that the entire bar is not good. There's, I practice with lots of great people, but Mm -hmm. I would say there was a whole generation of people that did this work because they couldn't find a better job. And that was the quality of legal representation. And so my space and this field is to make sure that the attorneys for children and the attorneys for parents, that we are elevating that, that we yeah. are creating a higher standard, higher expectations, that yeah. that these kids and these parents are getting the representation that they deserve and that they're entitled to. And for a kid, that means that their mm-hmm. voice is actually heard in court. I go to RTCs to visit my clients and all these other kids circle around me and they're like, miss, who's my attorney? Who's my attorney? Are you I've my seen attorney? That actually, I've seen that and I'm like, a lot. They I'm don't not know who your their attorney, attorney is. But shame on your attorney that you don't even know who they are. Yeah. And then for parents too, you just see all these parents like bewildered in court. Judge, I can't get my attorney won't return my call. My, and I don't just want attorneys who know their clients or return their calls. I want attorneys who have a social services support so that they can elevate their practice, who have that other lens, right? Because as Mm -hmm. lawyers, we think like, like this and the social services make us like get outside of ourselves a little bit. And I think that that's, that's my space here in Harris County. That's where I want to really start pushing the bar up and up and up. And as we as a law office start improving our quality Mm -hmm. of representation, then now we're showing everyone this is what can be done. So everyone else should hit this standard too. Yeah. And it's not just, you know, pointing fingers and saying, Hey, you're not, you're not measuring up. Um, it's more of let's set the standard for 
what this can look like. And we see that also kind of with the work we're doing with RTCs. And, and there's so many barriers to improving our practices and utilizing best practices. And so often it's kind of like, well, we can't do this because of this, or we need more funding for this. Um, and we've kind of come together and said, hey, let's just set the standard. Let's not wait on everyone else to kind of decide that they want to do it too. Let's just go for it. Let's do what we can to get the right things that we need and show that it is possible to have high quality care for these kids and get high quality representation, get services for these families. Even if it's not technically like our job, um, we can make sure that those things happen. Uh, but it's going that extra mile. It's kind of leading the pack in some ways. And I just, I mean, I applaud you for that because it's, it's a lonely sometimes place to be <laughs> yeah. and it doesn't always feel great. And people point, you know, they don't always have great things to say about that, but it is going to, I mean, we've seen that just throughout history. It takes somebody stepping in and saying, we're going to, we're going to change it. We're mm -hmm. going to fix it. Um, so I really just applaud you on that. Thank you. One of the other things that I was thinking about too, as you were, you were talking was I come from a background in medicine. And so, um, you know, it, it, when I was working at a nurse in a hospital, as a nurse in the hospital, um, everything that the doctor needs, if, he, if a doctor comes in is going to do surgery on a kid, right? They're looking at the chart. They're trying to gather as much information as they can because they're going to be making some really hard decisions, but they're not making those decisions alone. They're making those decisions based on the information that they've gotten from vital signs that nurses did, from histories that residents have taken, from the physical therapist, from the pharma, you know, the pharmacy and what medications they're on. And um, because if they don't have the right information, they can't make, they won't have a successful surgery and that kid is at risk. I see some of the same things in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. We experienced that when you know, my sons were um, in foster care that, even at a termination hearing, the judge only has the information. They're not going out to the home. And so they are making life altering, as you said, decisions for these kids, but only with the information that they have. And so that kind of highlights what um, the role of and what a huge role the attorney has in making sure that the information that they have, the resources that they have, so that the person that makes those decisions is making a good one mm -hmm. um, in the best interest of the kid. In your, from where you sit, what do you feel like if you were to pick one or two things that you feel like are just most urgently needed? We've talked about some of them already, but if you could change one thing today, what's the thing that you would change uh, when it comes to kids getting where they need to go? Ooh, <laughs> Just one, Tara, just depends one. Depends on the day you Maybe ask two. and what time of day and yeah. how much co coffee I've had. Uh, today, I think... The thing that I would change would be the availability of home setting placements for older youth. Mm -hmm. Because to me, that is a that is kind of a a place where a lot of these other problems are stemming from. Yeah. So when we're talking about yeah. RTCs, we are there because there are not enough home like settings for teenagers. Mm -hmm. We're talking about aging out of care to the streets, to homelessness, to incarceration. Mm -hmm. That comes because they aged out from an RTC. And our office has been utilizing what's called HCS Homes, and that's a whole different set of homes licensed through the Health and Human Services Commission that CPS gets really anxious because that's not a DFPS licensed placement. But a lot of times that's where we can get our 
older youth placed and we can get them stable and we can get them in a community mm-hmm. setting. And so I like Is that kind of child specific contract. It's child specific okay. contract. Right. And right now the department's trying to is filing motions to try to get out of every child specific contract of placement that we have because they don't want to pay for it and they want the child in a DFPS license placement, but that is like moving a child from a home setting where they're stable to moving them to an RTC that they don't. Is that happening need. kind of top level or where is that yes. coming? Yes. Okay. So those, the testimony of the workers is very interesting because you're like, Hey, this child was super unstable, right? Yes. How long has this child been stable in this home? Two years. Why is this child moving? Because state office said they need to move. (laughs) So it's like we win those hearings, but also kind of like the county attorneys and the CPS workers at the ground level are are pretty aligned with us. But that's a, you know, a bigger, broader question. There are other models we've seen in other states that kids can get into supervised independent living placements before 18. We Mm -hmm. could start putting them there at 16, 17. So there's a smoother transition. But we've decided they can't go until they turn 18. And that is a that is a rough That is a rough, abrupt, we need more foster homes. We have plenty of foster homes for the littles and we just need more foster homes. But part of that too, is everyone's like, this kid is so bad. And I'm like, they're literally in the system for a long time. And also they're just like literally being a teenager. Like I don't, yeah, they are doing some unsavory things, but also many of the things are, if you go down the street to whatever high school or a local, Mm -hmm. You know, that's just, they're just being teenagers and the tolerance for teenagers being teenagers, especially when there's a level of trauma on it, is just super, right. super low. Yeah. And so I think there are models that we could be implementing that we're not. And another example is I know that, you know, there's a CWAP location that we've worked with that was just super excellent. One mm-hmm. of my most volatile, wildest youth was completely stable in this little apartment on the north side of town with this little old church maybe in lady. Kingwood. Maybe in Kingwood. This maybe little, she's going to be on this podcast today. This little, please give her my <laughs> hugs and my love. I was so pregnant when my <laughs> client was placed with her and she would still check up on me even later. But I thought like... Sweet this little church lady. I love that that's how you... little church lady. And I'm just like, do we just need more little church ladies with apartments? Like, is this the model that we need? Because my wild and out youth was going fishing, walking across the street to go to youth group. Zero, zero, like fights with staff, no problems. And so what, what is it that every time we put him in RTC, he like beats up three people. But when he's with this little old church lady and just like an apartment, he's a whole different kid. We know... It's the, it's a safe environment. It's Mm. felt, it comes down to felt safety in relationships, hands down. It is, I feel safe here. There's people who look me in the eye. There's people who know me and can, and care for me and they don't even have to, they're not paid to be here. It comes down, I believe to relationships. Mm. How are we getting safe and stable relationships for these kids? Our system currently, I don't like to say that the system is broken. I love, I I mean, I I know that people say that all the time and Mm. I get defensive about it, not because I'm even a technically a part of the system, but it's because I see caseworkers working as hard as they can, many of them. Mm. I see what it can be. Um, The reality is that it's not what it should be. Um, However, I do believe that that's a gap. We have to, at all costs, if we know that relationships are the thing, safe relationships where kids 
feel safe, not are safe because they're not in, you know, mm-hmm. they don't have the dangers that we think of, but do they actually feel safe? That really is what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. When kids feel safe, they act differently. Their belief systems change and then their behavior changes, you know? How do you feel like we get there? Like, I mean, I know there's a <clears> lot of, you know, specific things that we can do. We can advocate legislatively. We can mm-hmm. try to change th- things, you know, at the top. But how how do you think we get there? <clears throat> I think in a lot of ways we're on the right path. What I am curious to see is whether or not this cohort of older youth, I think a lot of them are from are in care from an era that's a little bit more bygone where we terminated parents' rights for things that looked like poverty, that looked like mm-hmm. basic neglect, that looked like low-level marijuana use. And now those kids have been in the system for 10 years, just hanging out, growing older in foster care, and now they're 13, 14, 15, mm-hmm. 16, 17. And I don't think that that's our culture yeah. anymore. I think that we are doing a lot better job placing kids with families. Mm-hmm. And I think we're doing yeah. a lot better job at, at least here in Harris County. I can only speak to us here in Harris sure. County. I think we're doing a lot better job at not just removing kids from parents willy nilly. And some right. of that is cultural. Some of that is the quality of the lawyer. Some of that is our County attorney's office being the gatekeeper for what cases do and do not come in. And <clears throat> And some of that is, is just the agency. So I think that we're doing a lot better job at like, do we have to take your kids or do we have to put them in foster care? And if yes, is there family, is there family that we can approve? And sometimes CPS can't approve that family. There's like a lot, a lot, a lot of policies in place about families and kinship and who they can and cannot approve. So it's really incumbent upon us as the lawyers to say like, Grandma got a DWI 20 years ago. Shut up. Like he can go with grandma. Yeah. But CPS can't say that. Like this is against policy, but we want to place him. They need a lawyer to actually advocate. But I think collectively we are Mm -hmm. doing a better job at keeping kids in their families of origin and their communities of origin. I think we're all starting to value uh, family placement over this like concept of the little old woman who lived in the shoe that we used to have a few decades ago that was just like collecting children to keep them safe. I think we're starting to or like move. congregate right. settings. Ex- we're exactly. starting to realize that those should be short term, yeah. not long term. And so I think that we are doing a lot better mm-hmm. at finding families and preserving families and getting kids <clears throat> into family like settings. I will be really curious if in 10 years you and I sit down and have the same conversation, if we will have seen kind of these older youth, a lot of them age out because that's the trajectory that they're on. We don't have family-like settings for them. We don't have permanent placements for them. Maybe their parents can come back and get their rights back now. Um, Maybe we can go find a grandma now, but I think that we'll see a lot more older youth in the next decade age out and a lot fewer Mm -hmm. youth turn into older youth in the languishing PMC settings. I think the culture has shifted. Yeah. And I think that culture shift, I'm hoping that it is kind of a zoom, we're zooming out enough to see what, what is actually, what can prevent these problems from happening in the first place, right? Rather than dealing with all of these band-aids downstream, we're starting to be able to step back enough as, as a, you know, culture as a city, as a system, um, to be able to see maybe we can cut it off at the beginning. Maybe we can try to find ways um, to get these kids in a permanent placement earlier. We have so much work to do there. But if if we can start thinking that way, then hopefully we can start 
pushing in that direction. So um, last question would just be, I know we've talked about a lot of things that are really heavy and I feel like listening to this could be like, man, our system is, it's really not where it should be. Um, you, you touched on it just that there, there is a shift in a positive direction, but can you give any examples of just glimpses of hope, um, either stories or ways where you have seen, seen it work? Oh man, I have so many, <clears throat> uh, so I want to go back to my client who told me about his Thea. And if I hadn't had that relationship with that client, if I hadn't sat down and he said, miss, can I get on your Facebook? I want to send a message to my Thea. And I let him send this message to his Thea and she and I got in contact. She had no idea. And over time, their house is being built. It was a while. <laughs> like CVS was like, it's a health hazard. But eventually that, that worker was really with me. And we worked with that family for years and got the entire sibling group placed mm, with that family. Yeah. And that was able to be consummated in adoption because those parents' rights yeah. had been terminated. And I think that, you know, she still sends me pictures of them every first school day and at the end of every school year. And that's just one of the times you're like, Man, I'm so I'm so glad we were able to figure it out. And I think we have a client, a parent client on the parent side because we haven't really been talking as much about that. Mm-hmm. We have an exceptional reunification rate and family preservation rate. So one of our performance metrics isn't just like did you get your kids back, but did your case resolve without an involuntary termination? Because sometimes you get to the end of the case and you as a parent are not able to be safe, stable and appropriate as a full-time caregiver. Um, but we had a parent that was, and she did her whole services. She was a victim of sexual exploitation. She was a victim in many different Mm -hmm. ways. And during the court hearing, a lot of people were holding that history against her. And I am super proud to have a legal team that, I mean, we're talking like 40 hours of contested court hearings, but the judge heard it all. And she let us put on our case. And that woman got her kids back because she deserved to have her kids back. And I think that those yeah. are the types of cases that keep us going. Yeah. Um, we get a lot of the cases from the news. And I can say that we are having just such hopeful, exciting, promising success. And that's because like we're able to work with community members like you, other providers yeah. in the community, really wrap these families up in, in love and services and mm-hmm. support and get these kids who have become for the most tragic of circumstances just to see them smile, thrive, have a sibling yeah. visit for the first time in five years. Yeah. And so those are the cases that keep us going. It's hard for us on the legal side because sometimes you, the battle to get to the end of the case can take years, literally mm-hmm. years. And it can be hard in a snapshot of the case to really see the light on the other side. And in those snapshots, sometimes yeah. you just like cry yourself to sleep at night. But at the end of the case, you can look back and say, Today I did a good thing. And yeah. so that's really exciting. And I want to go back to your comment about how do we prevent? Like, what are we doing on the prevention side? How do we go farther upstream? I've always talked about it as killing the ogre who's throwing the kids in the water. Like, that's always been my to metaphor. To get to a whole other level. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> An that's ogre has entered the river. <laughs> the, ogre, the ogre's at the, the head of the river just tossing children in. Um, it's like a horrible <laughs> children's book. <laughs> That's how I heard the Maybe we should write a children's book about this. Um, But 
there is a point where CBS's hands are tied in a lot of ways, right? We're yeah. seeing on the news like these tragic incidences of children being mm-hmm. left home who are found dead. And CPS is getting a bad rap, but that's not always their fault because there does have to be an active emergency because of the recent court mm-hmm. legislation. And sometimes their hands are just tied. And also the only legal tool in CPS's tool belt is removal. And that's yeah. not always what the family needs. Sometimes right. what they need is grandma. Support. Yes. Nope. Or grandma needs an actual court order so she can mm-hmm. enroll the kids in school or get their SSI. Or um, we have a lot of times non-offending or protective parents who need a protective order and a primary custody agreement so that that yeah. child doesn't have to go into foster care, that they can just transition from the non-protective or abusive parent to the protective parent. And those are the types of things that those tools are in our tool belt. Yep. And that's one, that is the way that we're able to impact kind of that front of the river besides like the actual legislative stuff right. and the impact litigation and the um, appellate work that I'm hoping to do. But I think that there are legal tools. We don't think about the legal tools that often, but I do yeah. think that there are legal tools and legal avenues that can keep families safe, stable without intervention that we are starting to explore as well. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's the hope. I think knowing, knowing what avenues and what tools are out there, is just the very first part of that. If we can know what resources exist, what tools are out there that we can use to get these kids out because everyone only has the tools that they have. But again, it's kind of this, what we talk about all the time is pulling those together and helping people to access those different resources and those different tools. And if we can share them with one another, um, start talking to one another, um, start seeing each other less as adversaries, but as actual partners in Mm -hmm. seeing the kid in the river, seeing the family in the water and saying, okay, we all have a responsibility here to get this kid and this family out and actually stabilized on the side. That's a win for everybody, Mm -hmm. right? You guys are an integral part of that. I want to just say kind of as we close, I'm so very glad that you took the step um, to do this, especially in Harris County, that you're not still up um, on the northeast side yeah. doing work up there, um, but that you took that that brave step to use your personal experience in your own family um, to kind of redeem in some ways the things that you saw that that were really hard as a, as a kid. Um, mm-hmm. I can't imagine being in that place, but to to step in and to invest, to do the hard thing and to really lead um, is a really huge thing. So we're grateful for it. Um, Thanks for sharing your time with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. To those listening, we hope these conversations have inspired you to find your place along the river. And we welcome you to join us in bringing hope and renewal to the city of Houston. If you'd like more information on how to get involved, please visit riversideproject.org and submit a contact form. We'll see you next time.